Good morning. Happy Father's Day. It's a lot of grumbling. Anyone ever watch uh, Tool Time? That's not what it's called, but that's what I always call it. What was the name of the show? Tim Allen? Home Improvement. There we go. I, uh, um, excuse me. Oh, I got hooked there. I thought Nathan was pulling on me. Do you need something? Okay. Anyway, so uh, home improvement. This isn't in my notes. I was just thinking about it because I grunted up here, right? Like I said, happy Father's Day. And that's literally the noise I heard. I heard the Tim Allen like, ar, ar, ar. that's the grunt, right? Go ahead and do it again, please. Good enough. <laughs> I used to, uh, back in the day when I uh, toured and did magic and stuff and was in front of audience a lot, I used to joke with like bands and stuff we were around. I was like, man, Churches are the easiest audience because they will laugh or smile or do literally whatever you tell them. They're so kind. And I, we just experienced that. Like, I, you guys just, all of you, even women, you just grunted at me. We're at church to read the Word of God, and you're grunting at me. We're one family here. Isn't that beautiful? Happy Father's Day. There it is. Okay. Gosh. Uh, one of the first things I write in my notes is to slow down, so I'm going to read that to myself now. We're going to slow down and quit grunting. Um, hey, if you could grab a Bible or you could grab your little John book, this is uh, one of those Sundays where David gets really excited and he comes up here and he says, guys, there's this thing in all of Scripture, literally the whole book, and we're going to talk about it in 40 minutes or less. And you're like, yeah, right. And so some of you are like, oh, this is a theme study, isn't it? Oh, gosh, I had lunch plans. It's okay. We're going to try to move pretty quickly, but there's going to be a lot of scripture. And so if you needed, like right now, if you're like type A and you're like, I need to be at a place in scripture, then I would encourage you to put your finger in John 4, put your finger in Jeremiah, (coughs) anywhere will do, um, and then uh, Acts 2. Uh, Those will kind of be some some big stopping points for us. I'm going to go ahead and move this. Okay. So as we've been going through the Gospel of John, um, we have seen kind of some themes and things come out. We're going to read a small snippet of John chapter 4, and then we'll have about uh, three sermons on this woman at the well afterwards. Nathan is going to introduce it a little bit at his ordination next week. Uh, You should come to that. It's going to be great. We're going to introduce the woman at the well and some of the tensions there. Uh, And then the next week, Nathan's going to unpack some of the the deeper underlining things there about that. Then Jimmy's going to come and talk to us about that as well. There's a lot of, a lot of good stuff here in the woman at the well. I want to look at John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. We're going to just skip a lot of the conversation about the woman at the well and just know this fact. Jesus is at a well. That matters in Scripture. He's talking to a woman. That matters in Scripture. There are women and wells all through Scripture. It's a theme. It's cool. It's exciting. We'll cover that another day. And then she's drawing water. Jesus is talking to her. Here's what's said. Jesus says to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is another time we've heard the word eternal life, right? Those who believed in him were called sons of God. Um, If you uh, believe in him, you have eternal life. This phrase eternal life is used over and over and over. And here Jesus is saying, hey, you drink from my water, you've got eternal life. This is pulling us into a theme. If you haven't noticed, John cares a lot about water. Work backwards with me, right? Last week, we talked about a a tension with John the Baptist and his disciples. They were concerned that John the Baptist was, uh, that Jesus was discipling, his disciples were baptizing more people than him. Water. They were baptizing, they were getting dunked, immersion, baptizo. That's what's happening. And they were concerned. And then just before that, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and spirit. And then just before that, Jesus makes wine. How does he make wine? From water, right? And it's, it's in these purification jars, which are meant for purifying water. It's water that's used for purification rituals, right? And then uh, before that, we have John the Baptist discussing baptism with the Pharisees. We have this water theme and this baptism over and over. It makes us wonder, why is water and baptism something John keeps bringing up? 
right? It's just like, he's, man, he must be like just a Midwesterner in the summertime that just wants to get wet. Like, that's his thing. He's got to get to the water hole, right? I think Brad Paisley wrote a song about that. And so John the Baptist, he cares, or John, the author, he cares a lot about water. Why? Why does baptism matter? Why does Jesus say this thing about water leading up to eternal life? Well, this is a, a kind of special Sunday here where we're going to take a break from reading through John verse by verse. Talking about, we're going to say, hold on. John's been talking to us about water. We're going to talk about water this Sunday. Can we do that? Can we talk through water and baptism? Are you interested in baptism? Don't say no, because then we've got to just like improv a whole other sermon. That's what I plan to talk about. So we're okay. We're going to talk about baptism. And here's, here's what I think is important. Some of you who may have been, you know, uh, by God's grace, born and raised in church, you've heard these things a lot. There's a reason why we explain baptism every time we do it here. A couple weeks ago when we baptized my son, we explained it. Every baptism, some of you have been baptized, you make eye contact with me. We explain it. It's a process. We walk through a lot to do with it because there's so much going on here. And I think that sometimes our familiarity, it breeds a contempt or a distance of like, oh yeah, that's the spiritual bath we take. Praise the Lord. Let's move on. They're now one of us. Let's go. I think the Bible can teach us something so much deeper about this because baptism, like fatherhood, like motherhood, like parenting, like marriage, uh, like the Lord's Supper, like blood, like mountains, like trees. It is a theme so deep in Scripture that there are not enough sermons for us to cover it. In fact, eternity is measured by us experiencing God and constantly growing to know Him and to be with Him and to glorify Him. And so it makes sense that we can't scratch the surface on baptism. If you're in here and you think you've already got water and baptism locked down, you're missing it. Because you don't. You shouldn't. How great is God that he's given us these things that just we constantly understand. This is the fourth time I've done a study like this and all these new things come out to me that I'd never heard of. It's like, man, the Bible's so cool, guys. So we're going to get into that. We're going to mess with that here in a minute. Um, I want to pray and then we're going to start talking about water. Let's pray. God, may you guide us as we read your word. Um, I pray you bring clarity uh, amongst all the scriptures we look at. Uh, this, the depth of, of what you've given us and how it ripples with baptism and, and living water. I pray that you'd help make sense of that, that your spirit would guide us. Thank you for these images, these realities of water and spirit that you mention over and over and over in Scripture. May we see you continue uh, to bring order from chaos as your spirit, your presence in us, gives us eyes to see, ears to hear as you give us life. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Uh, let's talk about water. When, uh, I feel like this is in some people's way. I'm going to move it right here. When you think of water, what's uh, the first thing that comes to your mind? Water. Wet? Did someone say wet? No one. No one's afraid. They're like, no, I didn't say that. Yeah, there's actually a whole philosophical argument on whether or not water is wet. I think it's a foolish debate, but you should look it up because there are people like Scott Loring who will try to convince you that water's not wet, which, uh, whatever. Like, it makes things wet, but by definition, it's not wet. I think it's a colloquial argument that's absolutely useless. But anyway, what else do you think of? You think of water? Gatorade? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there it was. Fantastic. Wow. Oh, man. Anyone else? Water? Clear? Clear? Pure? Pure? Refreshing. Refreshing. Right? Because uh, we had like five answers before someone called out the point that you need water to live, right? Like it's kind of important. Most of the world is covered in it. Why are you guys looking at me like this is like, like am I, am I, do I make this sound like loaded? Do you feel like I'm looking for an answer? It's just water. It's summer in the Midwest. Do you have a bathing suit? Come on. You're ready to get wet. No, you're done. You're like, okay, I'm out. Quit. Tell me what I'm supposed to hear. It's Father's Day. I'm just, I don't want to talk about water. Okay, that's fine. No. I think, uh, let, let's do this. Okay. Thumbs up or down. Is water good? Is water bad? You vote. Good. Yeah. So here's what's interesting about water. We need it to survive, right? Cities are built, no water sources. This is like a thing you understand when you study anthropology is there's always a water source. It's important. And, and desert cities ha don't do very well. They need to be built by a water source. It's a big deal. Um, I think it's interesting that water in the pool is a really great thing to us. Water pooling up in the basement is not a good thing. Like, you don't want, like, come on. Like, it's like, ah, there's water all over my basement. High-pressured water coming from a sprinkler, watering the yard, or uh, shooting within a little metal box to make our dishes clean. Yes, I want that water. High-pressured water breaking a pipe and squirting all over the kitchen floor. No, water bad, right? 
Like, so is the water good or bad? People drown in water, but I need it to survive. So now we have an issue. Uh, here, here's a great example. Um, this is a squirt bottle, and there are children in the room who want to get squirted right now because they like water. But if I started walking around and squirting you, you'd be like, stop it. I actually got our water, uh, water that's a little broke because now I can't squirt anyone from up here. You're welcome, right? I brought our broken one so I can't hit Miss Tisha from here. Or Jimmy, I'm trying. But so if you get wet when you don't want to, it's a problem. If I jumped into the baptism full water right now, I'd be wet and uncomfortable. I'd ruin my cell phone, my whole clothes. But if I was wearing a bathing suit and it was time to get baptized or jump in the water, yes, water's really good. Don't set water on the piano. Got it. Uh, another example, water fun. Don't water the piano, except for Tisha's piano. She waters it sometimes. It's confusing. So, water, good or bad? So, when we, when we challenge this, the Bible walks into this tension. Think with me. In the beginning, right, the first thing mentioned about the world was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over what? The waters. What an interesting thing to discover. Like, wait a minute. God created the heavens and the earth, and the first, like, thing, element mentioned, there's water there hold on. And it's chaotic water. The image is like, this is dangerous, uncomfortable, bad. Water, bad in Genesis 1, right? God has to order it. More on that here in a minute. And then later on, um, God speaks and orders the water. Then he allows the waters to become chaotic again and flood the whole world, right? In uh, Genesis 6. And then um, God turns water into blood in Egypt, right? As part of the plagues, he's rescuing people. And then God parts the water so that the Israelites can walk through the Red Sea, being rescued from him. And then God uses the waters to come back together, destroying Egypt's army, Pharaoh, all them coming through the waters, sloshing water, right? And then later on, God parts the Jordan so that the Israelites can walk through into the promised land. So water has this like weird thing in scripture. Is it Noah water that drowns people? Or is it like Red Sea water that rescues us? Like, where are we at here with this? Well, as we wrestle with that tension, I want to start by watching a video on water in scripture that'll save us time and it's more graphical than I am. So here you go. If you go out into a desert, you'll see why it's one of the most deadly, uninhabitable places on the planet. It's dry, and where there's no water, there's no life. This is the picture that we get on page two of Genesis. The story begins with a dry and desolate wilderness, but God provides a spring in the desert that becomes a source of life for plants and animals. And that's where God brings together a man and a woman so that humanity can flourish and spread the life of the garden. Exactly. And that garden spring becomes a river that flows out to water the entire world. And there can be enough for everyone. It's all a gift from God. And this is great, humans in a lush garden, but as it turns out, they find a way to ruin it. Right. Despite all of this water that God's provided, it's like they still have a drought deep inside of them. This is an image of the human condition, how we're always thirsty for more. But more of what? Well, in this story, the humans want more wisdom to create more security and more control on their own terms. And tragically, it only leaves them more thirsty and suspicious of each other. And so they end up back in the wilderness. The humans have lost access to the water of life. And because of that, they can't spread God's life into the world. And so God needs to rescue them from the wilderness. Yeah, like in the story of Jacob. His selfish scheming ruined his family relationships, so he has to run from his problems out into the wilderness. But there he finds a well and he meets a woman. And this is like Eden, a man and a woman together by a source of water. Right. And then through Jacob, God creates the family of Israel, and he invites them to share in his own life so that they can be his partners in spreading that life to others. And sometimes they do this. But ultimately, they struggle with the same drought of the soul, thirsting for more power and more control, and it leads them down a path of violence and self-ruin. And so they find themselves in a new wilderness, captive to other nations. All this effort to quench our own thirst on our own terms, it's killing us. Yeah, the biblical prophet Ezekiel described Israel in exile as a pile of dry bones scattered in a desert valley. But, he said, one day God will pour out his own life presence, his spirit, to water the land, to create a new Eden and new kinds of humans. People who can spread God's life to others. Exactly. And so this brings us to the story of Jesus. Right. And there's a story about Jesus who goes to a well that Jacob used to own. And just like in Jacob's story, Jesus meets a woman. 
And he tells this woman that no matter how much water she drinks from this well, she'll always thirst for more. Then he offers water that could quench her thirst forever. He's not talking about the well water. No. What he's talking about is God's own life that comes through him to us to satisfy our deepest thirsts. This is why later on Jesus says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. This is cool, but it's also a strange image, drinking from a person. Totally. And it's connected to another strange image we find in the story of Jesus' death on the cross. A Roman soldier thrusts a spear in Jesus' side, and there's blood. But also, all this water flows out. Yes, it's an image showing how Jesus' death is a fountain of life. From him, God's own love that would die for his enemies flows down and out into the world. After Jesus was raised from the dead, we're told that he sends the Spirit into his followers. Yes, to fill them up with God's own life. This is why the Apostle Paul said that when we join the current of God's Spirit, the fruit of Eden starts growing in us. Love and joy, patience and kindness, gentleness and self-control. People like that can create beautiful things in the world that bring life to others. Yes, like little streams of God's life that can come together and point forward to the beautiful scene that we find on the last page of the Bible. There's a new river of life. Yes, it's flowing out from God and into a renewed creation, bringing life to all wherever it goes. As we uh, discuss these things this morning, one of the things that we want to ask, we want to wrestle with is, uh, so I skipped this slide, Joe, I apologize, but uh, what is baptism? Why does it matter? What is baptism? Why does it matter? We're going to look at Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist, and why he was baptizing, and New Testament baptism. Maybe you've never considered that, but um, Jesus got baptized. John the Baptist was baptizing, and then the New Testament believers, they got baptized. And it feels like at face value, there's some differences in those baptisms. And, and so how are we to make sense of this? What does baptism mean? And then we're going to pose at the end, why should I get baptized? What does that mean? And so if you're in this room, you're like, I've already been baptized. I can check out. Stop. Because God put you here for a reason. If you're watching from home, this isn't just about why you should get baptized. This is how we make sense of this, how we celebrate with people who do get baptized, and also why God even gave this to us. Why is this not an optional extra credit thing? Oh, yeah, I, I, you know, whatever. That's an A+. Plus. I'm okay with just getting an A. Uh, let's let's kind of move forward and wrestle with that. Uh, if you want to look at Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that's where we're going to start. We see in this, uh, in the beginning of Genesis, God takes water and orders it, uh, brings it together, and has rivers of life. You can see that in Genesis 2. I believe it's in verse 6. God starts bringing these waters together. And then also in Revelation 22, it's so fascinating, you have rivers flowing out of the throne room of uh, the Lord himself, rivers flowing out. And it's so fascinating to consider the Bible starts with God ordering waters and bringing river of life, and the Bible ends with that. And rivers and water are so essential to human life. It's almost like God's trying to tell us something, like he's ordered the whole world to point us to him. Whoa! Isn't that interesting? It's so beautiful. Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. We've talked about that before. Tobu vavohu. And darkness was over the face of the deep. So God created it, but as he's creating it, there's like this problem. It's not good. It's formless void. It's empty. It's deserted. It's chaotic waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And, and what happens is God's Spirit comes and, and God speaks. And as he speaks ten times, he says, this is good, right? What he does is he orders the waters. You can see that later in Genesis 1 verses uh, 9 and 10. He's ordering the waters, verse 10. Um, there's a word for God ordering waters. You might have heard this word um, from your, your Hebrew Jewish friends. But when God orders the water, the word is mikvah. Say mikvah. Mikvah. Who knows what a mikvah is? Any Jewish people in here? Or been around mikvahs? So it's, it's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, mikvahs are still used today. It's a Jewish cleansing ritual. It's, it's a bath. 
um, and it has to have living water brought into it. And so there's some caveats made with like uh, uh, actual water from the tap because it's coming from active water. But uh, ancient mikvahs were pools of water that were gathered from natural sources and they were used for ritual cleansing, right? And so the first time you see mikvah mentioned in scripture is the word used for God gathering the waters together. And the Hebrews saw this as, oh, this must be special. If God has gathered flowing water from a natural source together, we call that mikvah. Later on in Leviticus, when God tells them to uh, have ritual cleansings, Leviticus 11.36, um, he, uh, he uses mikvah. Say, hey, these are the pools that you can cleanse things in. And later on, Jews, when there was a proselyte that would come and they would convert to Judaism, they'd say, I want to follow Yahweh, but I'm not a blood-born Jew. They'd say, okay, get in the mikvah. They would do their version. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, this sounds like baptism. Yeah. This is where this comes from. This idea that there is a way to cleanse. There's a, there's a place that we can go to do these ritual cleansings. And that's all of uh, Hebrew understanding is that there is something dis- messed up with me. And it's not just sin, right? We talked about that when we went through Leviticus last year. Like, obviously sin separates us from God. But because of the ripple of sin, there's just uncleanliness in the world. There's things like dead corpses, even if it's from natural causes. Death in general is not part of God's order. And so being near a corpse, touching a corpse, makes you unclean, right? Um, today, mikvahs are used uh, same way that they were used in scripture. Uh, women, when they finish their menstruation cycle, Jewish women will go and they'll bathe and they'll fully immerse themselves in the mikvah and they'll say a prayer. And the idea is to say, like, man, I am committing to the Lord. I'm going through the waters. And then you start seeing the ripple for Jews. They understand, hold on, I'm going through the waters just like God brought Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, just like God ordered the waters in Genesis, the chaotic waters he spoke in his spirit, just like God finished his covenant to his people to bring them in the promised land by parting the Jordan and Joshua and his people, the Israelites, were able to go through. Now you start saying, oh, hold on, there's a connection here. These mikvahs, these things, God's doing something here. He's rippling through. And as you start understanding mikvahs. It makes sense how prophets start using language like living water. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13. We read this a couple weeks ago. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is living water. We are going against his pattern, and we can't hold water. We did the whole cup thing, if you remember. We talked about how, man, God wants to renew us in his spirit, place his presence in us, water and spirit. Now, Jeremiah 17, 13. This is really fascinating. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. There's a play on words happening here. There's a word in Hebrew for hope. It's tikvah, right? And so that word is used in the vast majority of time. We use the word hope in scripture. This word for hope, Jeremiah has a play on words. He uses mikvah. He says, hold on. There are people who've gone against the Lord, but the Lord is the mikvah, the hope of Israel. He's the living water. He's the one that's ordered and brought waters together. He's the one that we can come to. He's ultimately the hope. Do you see now where Jesus says, the water I give, I'm the living water. See, Jeremiah prophesied. He knew. He said, I know the Lord. He's the living water. He's the only hope of Israel because he's the only mikvah, the collection of living water that can actually purify and make them clean. And then that ripples say, hold on, now I understand the purification jars. We read about a few weeks ago that Jesus turned water into wine. And now why did they have these purification jars? To make things pure. But wait, when God puts these mikvahs together to, to, for ritual cleansing, for purification, Jeremiah is Im- imagining a world which, hey, this hope of purification, this hope of going through the waters of chaos from darkness to light, this is only in the Lord. He's the hope. He's the mikvah. So now we get to John the Baptist. Uh, the voice crying in the wilderness, right? He's quoting Isaiah. He's here to prepare the way of the Lord. That's what John the Baptist says. We already talked about JTB back when we did uh, John chapter 1. In Luke 3, John, uh, Luke explains John the Baptist's baptism, why he's doing it. Matthew 3 also does this. Uh, you can, if you're taking notes, you can write Luke 3, Matthew 3. But here's Luke 3. And John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance and 
Forgiveness of sins. It's on the screen? Good. Yeah, yeah. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? And so what we see here is John's calling people to a renewed commitment. Why is John baptizing, right? He understands this mikvah thing. He understands ritual purification. He's baptizing in the Jordan, right? So he came through that end of the promise. Land. Like, he's doing stuff here. God's trying to communicate something through him, right? But, but Jesus hasn't died and resurrected yet. So what's, what's John doing? Have you ever thought about that? Why are people getting baptized by John the Baptist? It's literally his name. John the Dunker. That's what his name means in Greek, right? Say John the Dunker. Homie, never touched the basketball. He's a better dunker than you. Ha! Father's Day. Get it? Dad, no, come on, people. I don't have many jokes this sermon. That's the best we're going to get So Bad. That wasn't even in my notes, Joe. I'm sorry. So he's John the Dunker, right? He's calling people to a renewed commitment. He's saying, hey, do you remember Jeremiah? Do you remember Ezekiel and Isaiah and all the prophets? They said that God would come and he would make things right. That we keep making a muck of this place and he's going to make it right. So why don't you get baptized? Why don't you come to the Jordan and renew your commitment? Be immersed and come out of it just like God's people did through Israel just like or through Egypt, just like God's people did from the Red Sea and from the Jordan. He's bringing them in to say, hey, hey, this is why you should be baptized. For repentance, and we've talked about repentance, to rethink about what you think about, to change your mind, to turn, to say, I've been looking this way, my vision's here, I'm going to look this way. And he's saying, hey guys, look this way. You've completely missed this whole promised land thing. You've completely missed what the Lord's calling you to. You need to get baptized and renew the covenant. Renew what he's called you to. Remember what the Lord has done. So John the Baptist begins baptizing, calling people to this renewed commitment to the Lord, readying them for the Messiah. In John chapter 1, it told us that uh, John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend on the Messiah, on Jesus, like a dove, and it remained on him. We have this whole thing starting in John with water and spirit. We're going to read about this. So this is John the Baptist. Why did John baptize? He's calling people to, hey, you see this image of water? You see this renewed life? You see this metzvah? All this stuff connecting? Hey, come into this. The Messiah is coming. Now, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Whoa! If you're a theological person, if you're a church person, that should be a little weird to you. Hold on. Why would Jesus need to be baptized by this guy. John had the same tension. Let's read about it. Matthew three fourteen through 17. John would have had prevented Jesus from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John's just posing like, man, if Jesus asks you to baptize him, come on. You bet, uh, no. Like, it's kind of a foot-washing thing, uh, kind of in reverse, this whole tension of like, wait, no, no, no. Like, we need to be, I need to be doing, you need to be doing this to me. Like, this is all on you. And, and Jesus says, no. But Jesus answered him, verse 15, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to what? To fulfill all right, say righteousness. Righteousness. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you feel this ripple? The Father's there, ordering the chaos. The heavens open, and the Spirit of God descended. Genesis 1 and 2. Do you feel it? That's why we say every week, everything comes back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's so crazy. The heavens open up. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There is so much in these verses that I want to unpack that we don't have time for, but we're going to hit a few of this. He says, you are my son. The first time this phrase is used, you are my son, in this way, you see it used in Exodus 4, when God calls Israel his son. I will bring you out like my son. Jesus is the Israel, is the people, is the humanity that we could never be. Because we go astray. Our proclivity is to sin, to rebel. And so just this phrase alone, Matthew's making a point. They're making a point to us to say, hey, listen, this is my beloved son. Jesus is the beloved son. He's Israel. We see the same thing uh, David mentions in Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write those down. You can read them later. But here's the thing. There's only one other time that someone is referred to as a beloved son in Hebrew scriptures. Can you guess who it is? Is it already on the screen? Did it get ruined for you? Oh, okay. It's Isaac. Abraham's son Isaac was referred to as the beloved son. And I don't know if you remember the story of Isaac, but Abraham hands his son over to death, and the son is redeemed from death. 
And so here you have God appearing, the Spirit descending, Jesus present, the Father, Son, and Spirit there. And he says, this is my beloved Son, the right Israel, the right humanity. He's going to make all things right. He's the one who's going to be put to death so that he could be redeemed from death, so that all could be redeemed through death. Whom I am well pleased. Those are verses that come from Isaiah 42. It's a messianic prophecy. I'm interested in how Jesus says, he's, why is he getting baptized? So we, we haven't dealt with that tension yet, right? John says, hey, uh, you shouldn't baptize me because, you know, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says what? He's doing it to fulfill all righteousness. And we've talked before about how righteousness is a relational word. It's very important that you connect that because we tend to just think righteousness is righteous acts. Righteous, brother. And when you just, as soon as you see the word righteousness, you think relationship, then you start understanding scripture a little bit better. Because the righteous acts that you talk about doing only make sense in the confines of relationships, right? The righteous things you do are in a right relationship to God, in a right relationship to your spouse, in a right relationship to your children, in a right relationship to your boss. That's where righteousness aligns with. It's a right relationship. Jesus is trying to fulfill all right relationships. You see in Isaiah 53, a messianic prophecy, it says, Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Paul picks up on the same analogy in Philippians 3, 9. He says that I be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus is bearing our sin and rebellion. He's bringing us all together on the basis of faith. Not, not our heritage, not just being a Jew, not all the good things that we do. He's bringing us together in faith. Jesus gets baptized to show, hey, I'm, I'm the one. I'm Isaac. I'm, I'm Israel. I'm, I'm everything. I'm going to be put to death so that you can have life. I'm going to go through the waters of chaos so that your waters of chaos can be organized and made right. Jesus is everything. Say Jesus is everything. Every week we say Jesus. And here we have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They're here to communicate. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only one who will make all things right to bring righteousness. That he's the beloved Son. That everything we were supposed to be is going to be handed to him. And he's going to do it rightly. He's going to bring his people to a new creation, a new kingdom. This is why after this Jesus goes. And what does he preach? We've talked about Mark 1.15. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent! Repent, turn, because now the kingdom of heaven's happened. Jesus is here to bring his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I know we quote this one a lot, but it's so powerful. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus is the living water. Because John baptism couldn't eternally save. Because the mitzvah, it couldn't eternally save. You did it again, you did it again. Jesus he clarifies the waters forever through his blood. He purifies everything. He's the living water. As we consider all of this, this baptism stuff, so we've been in the Old Testament, and now we're trying to look at Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist. I want us to just step into, hey, with all of this as the backdrop, read Acts 2. These are the believers as the church is being formed when the Holy Spirit falls. Acts 2, 37. So what happens in Acts 2 is Peter gives a sermon and he's speaking at Pentecost and, and he's, he's talking about the history of all these things, all of these, your father Abraham and, and all these tensions. And, and he speaks to that like, hey, you killed the Messiah. This is on you. You've brought this corruption. And then we get to verse 37. Now those who were listening, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Not of John the Baptist. Not of the coming Messiah. No, in the name of Jesus Christ. You repent and you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's ruach, his presence inside of you. If you haven't heard us teach on that before, you can go back and look. This idea of God's spirit hovering over the waters, ordering the chaos. He puts his spirit, his very presence, his animating force, his breath in us. Repent and believe in Jesus. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
Catch this. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is calling you to himself. That is the pursuit. He loves you. He's the father who's pursuing a right relationship with you. Righteousness to come out of you. Not the broken chaos disorder that you see all around. So now we have believers. They're being baptized in his name. Water and spirit. Did you catch it? Constantly happening in scripture together. Water and spirit. Water and spirit. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The same ruach that pushed back the darkness and ordered the waters in Genesis 1 is now coming and dwelling inside of people to push back the darkness in their life. The same Spirit of God, Ruach, coming in. So what? Right? We're reaching that time where it's like, okay, how are we going to wrap up here? We've got to get going. What do we do with all this? Well, I've got a whole page uh, on what to do about that, so get ready. I'm glad you asked. Uh, what is baptism then? We kind of talk about Jesus' baptism. We talked about John the Baptist. We talked about mitzvahs and, and kind of how this happened in, in the background, or mikvah, sorry, um, and how these things happen in the background. We talked about water all through Scripture. Here's a definition of baptism. Baptism in the Bible expresses an identification with Christ's death and resurrection. The old self was crucified with Christ through the waters of chaos and death. And now followers of Jesus have risen with him newness of life into his kingdom. This comes directly from Paul in Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. So Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Israel didn't cut it. Humanity didn't cut it. Adam and Eve didn't cut it. King David didn't cut it. Abraham didn't cut it. John the Baptist didn't cut it. Jesus has come so that through him, through our faith in him, we will walk in newness of life because we have been buried with him in death and raised to new life in him. That's why, if you're listening, every baptism, what do we say? Buried with Christ, raised to new life in him. This is my part in a baptism. I do this. Sorry. If you don't know what these motions are, why is he doing that? That's kind of like if you're not familiar with this motion, no one hangs up a phone like this anymore. So you're like, why would anyone ever do this, right? Sorry, millennials, it's confusing. But like, so for, it's buried with Christ, raised to new life in him. John's baptism was preparing the way and renewing hope and covenant faithfulness, forgiveness and repentance. John's baptism couldn't save eternally. It only pointed to Jesus and the hope that the Lord would do what he promised. So in review, that's, that's John's baptism. Jesus' baptism showed us that he is the source of all the covenant, the hope of it all being made right, and the only way righteousness had come, bringing us together on the basis of faith in him, unifying, ordering the chaos, taking all that's broken and bringing it together, bringing shalom, peace. This is why Jesus can say, my peace I leave with you, because he is our peace. He is the living water. He is everything. The New Testament believer's baptism is an external celebration of the grace of Christ that has occurred in salvation. Baptized in the name of Jesus, identifying with his life, death, and resurrection. So why should I be baptized? Or maybe you're, you're catching a new layer of baptism and you're starting to think, oh man, this is why I was baptized. And that's beautiful. That's so good. May you ever grow to understand the depths and beauty of why you were baptized. May you never sit and be like, oh, this is, I, I'm the expert on baptism. Let me tell you exactly. May you ever see scriptures, whoa, I didn't even realize God was communicating this through, through baptism, through water, because that shows that God is this big and we are not. God is eternal. We're temporal. God has no limitation we are full of limitation. And despite our culture's constant cry to make you feel limitless and to make you feel like you have all power and all authority, we actually don't. And it's so beautiful when you can study something like baptism for the fifth time and be like, man, I didn't even realize that when I was baptized, I, I, I in a way, was connecting with going through Jordan and going through the Red Sea. I, I never thought about it. Like, that's so powerful and beautiful. I hope that you continue to grow in those things. But maybe you're here and you've never been baptized. Or you've been baptized and it wasn't actually something that, that you believed in. It wasn't even your choice or maybe it was just a ritual that you had never connected. The reason we get baptized is because it's an act of obedience. 
It's an act of, it's the first act of obedience. You choose to have faith in the Lord. And then you obediently act out by saying, I'm going to be baptized because that's the example Jesus gave us. In fact, that's what Jesus told us to do. I'm going to point to the wall. I didn't have put it in my notes because it's right there. All authority. This is Jesus. The last thing he said in Matthew, right before he ascended to heaven. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What? What are we supposed to do? Say baptizing. It's right there. I can see you not looking at it, but that's okay. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? You baptize them in the Father, the one who created all things, the one who organized all of creation, the one who's constantly trying to have a right relationship with you, the universal creator of all things, the objective source, the floor, God the Father who's constantly trying to make things right. We're baptized in his name, the one, the God of promises, the God of faithful covenants that said, I'm going to make this right. We baptize in his name. We baptize in the name of the Son, the one who came to take on death for us, to take on punishment, sin, the chaos disorder, the junk in your life. We baptize in his name, and we baptize in the name of the Spirit, the one that comes, God's presence, his ruach, his pneuma, his breath in our lungs, filling us up, actually completing what's broken in us. That's what we baptize in. The name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And remember, I'm with you always. Church, this is our command, to go and make disciples, to baptize them. I want to quote something I heard this week as we, we kind of start moving near the end here. Uh, stick with me, because there's something here about, about the church that I think gets missed a lot with this. If you're a church member, if you're a Christian, this is for you. I want you to hear this. David Platt said this, and I, it really stuck with me this week. He said, The church comprises a covenant community of believers who have identified with Christ through baptism. At face value, that's like, hmm, quite right, quite right. If you haven't been baptized, that makes you a little uncomfortable. Well, I don't need to get baptized to follow Jesus. I don't need to take your ritual bath. Listen. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, everyone. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. There's not a bunch of spirits out there. There is one spirit, one ruach, one pneuma, one breath of God that is put in you, his presence, empowering you. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all. Church, listen to me. The New Testament has no category for unbaptized believer. No category for it. And I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, but go and read it. Just do a word study on baptism. I can show you how to use it. Teach you how to use Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible, and you can see everywhere that baptism is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, obviously, I can feel the pushback. What about the thief on the cross? Yeah, sure. There are outliers of people. Someone, a grandma on her deathbed that gives her life to Christ, and then she's dying 10 minutes later, and she's not able to get baptized. Does she go to hell? No. That's not the point. And, and we can cover that in just a moment. We're not saved by baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. It's our obedience to Christ. And that's why in the New Testament, there's no category for a believer who has not been baptized because anyone who is baptized would be unified with the body to say, hey, we are one body. We have one spirit. We have one baptism. We come together to identify with Christ. It's not just about you. It's about his new creation. In fact, we've shown the slide a lot, but I want you to see it. You are saved from your sin, rebellion, death, and eternal separation from the Lord through your faith in King Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. That's what you're saved from, through your faith. But you are saved for something. And if you think that I've just been saved, I've got my fire insurance, I'm not going to hell, oh, I've done the religious things, oh boy, I go to church every now and then, whatever, you're missing it. Because you're saved for something. You have a purpose to your existence. You're saved for his kingdom come and his will be done. Say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Does that sound familiar? That's why Jesus taught us to pray that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Not David's kingdom, not Israel's kingdom, not America's kingdom. It's about him, his kingdom. You are saved for his kingdom come, his will be done. That kingdom is a kingdom of people just like you just as messed up as you, just as bald as you, just as weird and indifferent and uncomfortable, weird Android people, weird iPhone, whatever you are. It's full of people just like you. And they're walking in a new humanity in Christ, newness of life. You are called to live life together with them, authentically in Christ, for Christ, to bring other people into that kingdom. When you get baptized, 
You're not just getting saved from something. You're getting saved for... When you're baptized, you get us too. Sorry if that deters you. But look around. This is the church. This is why it's connected in Scripture as Christians are baptized. Because they're together. It's the moniker to say we are brother and sister. Adelphi, we've talked about that. And we come together to follow Christ as one. Everything comes back to the community of Christ. A people following Him. Not a collection of heroes and persons. A people following Him. One body, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. Baptism doesn't save us. It's very important to point that out because sometimes the way that the Spirit might move and you might feel convicted about something, I don't want some sort of evil or some, some selfish fleshly thought to get implanted that it's about you and like, oh man, I haven't been baptized or, or my, my daughter hasn't been baptized, whatever it is. I don't want that to say, oh man, they might not go to heaven. Nowhere, no verse we've read has said that. And actually this verse right here, repeating it, Philippians 3, 9, he says that I be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you want more on that, go read Ephesians 2. You are saved by faith alone, by his grace, through your faith in him. Baptism is the obedient step that comes after. As we talk about closing here, I want to hopefully give a helpful analogy that, that's been meaningful to me to consider. Uh, this is my wedding ring. I'm one of the cool hipster people that have a squishy ring. Um, not because uh, I owned this before I thought it was cool. I ruined my wedding ring deadlifting one day because I'm so yoked and I could lift a lot of weights, bra. But it really happened. I was lifting weights and I bent my wedding ring and it was cutting off circulation of my finger. And so then I, I took it off and I'm uh, kind of a traditional emotional person and it felt weird to not have a wedding ring. So I had a um, rubber band on my finger for a couple days. And then we ordered these because they're squishy and you can't ruin them, right? Um, people are like, why? you get a tungsten one because then it'll rip your finger off right so uh so no offense if you're a tungsten ring guy but i don't want my finger ripped off i'd rather the ring break because i can buy another one of these you can get a pack on amazon for like nine bucks thanks sullivan told me about that so anyway um so uh but this wedding ring represents so much more you guys have been to a wedding buckle up this symbolizes so much more than just my marriage it tells a deep story it's the best story I've got, and I don't have time to tell you right now, but someday, ask me about it. I love telling it. It's a story of how God proved his love for me. He proved his existence. He proved his grace by putting Nikki and I together. And the fact that I have a wife, that I'm not a terrible husband, that I haven't crushed our marriage with addiction, I haven't crushed our marriage with the sins of my past, that I have five kids and I'm not destroying their life every day, that speaks to the grace of God. This ring communicates so much more than just what you see, but it certainly does communicate that I'm married. It marks me, identifies me as being with Nikki. All cultures have had some sort of mark for them being married, for those being in relationship with each other. And this ring is that. This ring also communicates that I have a family. I'm not just responsible for myself, or at least it should communicate that I'm not just responsible for myself, that I'm in a family that has a mission to glorify God together. That's what we're doing. This is what this ring communicates. In a much deeper way, baptism communicates that you're identified with Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, his family, his new covenant, his new creative order, his kingdom come, his will be done. And, and just in the same way that, that, that baptism in itself, we're ever understanding the depths of this. I'm ever understanding the depths of this marriage, this thing God's called me to, the depths of what this ring actually means to me. And this isn't to be saying that your whole goal in life is to get married and I'm try, trying to make single people uncomfortable. That's not the point because it's not God's lot in life for everyone to be married. It is God's lot in life for you to have a right relationship with him. It is God's desire that you be baptized and be a part of his new kingdom because otherwise... If you don't put faith in him, if you don't follow him, you only have chaos, death, and destruction awaiting you. You have nothing to order the chaos. You have no presence, no breath of life in you, no living water. You're constantly dried out, dying, eternally separated from him. So in a much more beautiful and powerful way than this ring can communicate, deeper than we can know, the God of the universe by his grace has chosen to call you to himself to have a right relationship with you, to transform your life, to give you a purpose and a meaning to exist, to give you living water. As we hear rain hit the roof outside, we think through, he is the one who gives us living water. Some of you Midwesterners who love to talk about rain, you're pumped right now because we need the rain. Heard it this week. 
We have living water in Christ. We will need rain again next year. If you know Jesus, you don't need the rain anymore. He's full of your life. He's given you everything you need through him. Don't let your pride and arrogance stand. If you're watching from home, don't let your pride, your uncomfortable, your fear stand in your way. Let it loose. Get baptized. If you're a father in here and you've never been baptized, you're like, ah, no, I mean, maybe I was, I was as a baby. and I, I was, uh, Why not? What are you communicating to your family by not getting baptized? If you're in this room and you're not getting baptized, what are you communicating by not doing it? You're saying, I don't need to identify with that. I'm above that. Stop. Let it loose. I want to read Acts 2 again. First, let me say this. We are all in rebellion and sin. We're trapped in our rebellion and we'll die. Through Jesus, we're able to pass through the chaotic waters of death, of sin, of rebellion, because He is the living water. And He brings order and righteousness by His Spirit entering us, His presence making us new, giving us life. Born of water and spirit. Say, born of water and spirit. Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching from home, you're cut to heart. What do I do about all this? Here's what the Bible says. Repent. Change your mind. Look to Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Maybe you're here, you've never been baptized. Maybe there's someone you're praying for their baptism. I hope you understand that we're not using baptism as a mere ritual just to say, oh, it's like an A+, it's the next step in your faith. Baptism is the sign. Baptism is the outward expression of the inward reality to say, I've identified with Jesus. I belong to him. I've chosen to follow him. I'm walking into a covenant relationship with his body, his kingdom come, his will be done. If you'd stand as we move to uh, a time of response. Uh, we like to say, you know, I don't know how you should respond. I don't know how the spirit's moving. Maybe you need to give your life to the Lord. Maybe you're a family that, man, Father's Day is rough for you, and, and this whole thing is just like, man, I'm just feeling so heavy. I can't even hear what's going on here because we just got heavy family stuff. Like, we talk about coming up here and praying and, and the altar and what it means. The whole idea is just to lay it down, to lay it down before Jesus, to say, I need to trust you with my broken family because you say you're living water and you restore all things. I need to trust you with my addiction because you say you're living water and you make all things new. I need to trust you with, with this nightmare parenting situation I can't figure out, this awful job situation. I need to trust you with these dating relationships, with my constant internet history hiding because I don't want anyone to know what's really going on in my heart. I need to trust you because you say that you make us new creation, that you fill us up, that your presence, your spirit gives us new life. Maybe that's you. If you're in here and you need to be baptized, you're wondering about baptism, come talk to me. That's simply that. Just come up here and talk to me. You can come talk to Jimmy. We'd love to talk to you about baptism. Let's pray. Open our hands and see how the Lord wants us to respond. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing rain this moment. Oh, God, I pray that your spirit would continue to help us understand what your scripture is meaning. All these symbols of water, all these things of, of coming out of chaos, coming into your promised land, your promised hope of, of right relationship with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, for all the ways you've orchestrated your word to teach us. May your spirit guide us now. May your spirit speak to us. May we be filled by your spirit, by your breath, empowered by you. I pray for those who don't know you, those who have not been baptized those who, who've been baptized and it didn't mean anything, wherever the spectrum is, God, we, we ask right now that your spirit would move as you draw us to you and you'd give us boldness to respond. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for, uh, for all the subtleties of today to celebrate fathers and how that points us back to you, our Father. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Guide us as we respond.